HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after a long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet Plus Sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. host Michael Harlow and Churkel. And on today's episode, drinks writer Maggie Hoffman has shaken and stirred amongst the best bartenders in New York City while at Sarah's Eats and now sidles up to the bar in San Francisco for the Chronicle. And while her passion for potables has already produced a book about one bottle cocktails, it's her unquenchable thirst that's brought about batch cocktails, her most addition to libation lit. So let's raise our glasses or, or pitchers. And cheers to all the drinks made ahead. Welcome, Maggie. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll we'll get to this beautiful little book in a second, but I want to start with your drinking history. Um, having grown up in and around the Portland, Oregon area, uh, I know one thing about how fertile that ground is, and the berries and the fruits from the orchards and trees there are just so ripe and ready to be turned into something to complement alcohol, uh, cobblers, um, you know, other drinks that have that fresh fruit foil. What kind of drinking did you do as a youth or novice within the drinks world? Hmm. Well, early on, I actually used Portland as my one qualification for becoming a drinks writer. Um, I had 
gone to a few craft breweries in Portland in my college days and uh, they were so good and so exciting and it seemed like how could you miss out on that big thing that was happening um, and so I was reading Serious Eats and doing a little food blogging and and cooking a lot and I wrote to them and I said you need a beer writer uh, and I'm from Portland that's all I had <laughs> That's it. And if you don't have a Portland beer writer, do you actually have a beer writer at all? Right. And they said, how about every week? But I mean, you were writing. I mean, you, you were deep in the literary world, having gone to school, um, not only for history, but poetry and expressing yourself through words was innate. Yeah. And I missed writing. I think uh, writing a lot of poetry in college, I worked with some really amazing poets um, in college at Princeton. And then I went into the publishing world thinking that it was going to feel creative um, and quickly needed to get a job and took a production job, which did have some creative elements of um, looking at color, especially for children's books, to make sure that the new edition of a book had color that matched the first edition. And uh, then I got trained to update copyright pages in uh, Quark, which was the design software of the day. I'm showing how old I am. <laughs> and uh, so I, I began to get interested in design and I got trained to design books and realized like, oh, maybe this is a way it's going to be creative. And maybe I could design cookbooks. And I love cookbooks. And if you design a book, you get a free book. You know, I was sort of building up this collection in my tiny apartment. But I wasn't a great designer. And it involved a lot of planning and calculating, you know, okay, if this recipe is going to take up this much room, how big should the type be and all of that. Um, and I realized that wasn't quite the same as like using your own voice to say something. But you did get to dabble in vampire novels. <laughs> yeah, that the first the, the first rung on the uh, totem pole of a design department was uh, designing the mass market, you know, so vampire novels and romance novels and vampire romance novels mostly. Well, let's talk about the mass market of food in that Serious Eats had such a big voice when you joined them. Uh, that was 2010. Uh, they got a James Beard Foundation Award in 2011. What was it like to be that almost singular voiced for that site talking about all things drink? It was a really fun time. You know, I look back, some of those posts, you know, maybe they were a little nerdy and and uh, quirky for the time, and maybe they were a little ahead of their time. I had great writers working with me. I was hiring a lot of people who knew more than I did, and I was mixing drinks for the photo shoots and getting more and more interested in cocktails along the way. I had started by writing about beer and then wine and a little bit of food and doing some editing for them. Um, but I got into the cocktail scene there and uh, the privilege of being able to hang out with bartenders and interview bartenders made me realize like that's the coolest part of the job. Well, what is it about them versus beer people versus wine people? What are the nuances and characteristics that set them or maybe that literature apart? Hmm. I mean, they're all cool people, no question. Uh, but I'm interested in a bartender's job outside of what's in the glass. And I think some of that comes to this book as well, that when you're a host or when you're a bartender, you're thinking about the whole environment and 
uh, putting someone at ease and spending time together and getting to know someone, you know, a bartender who thinks about, oh, this person's going to become a regular and they should know this other regular and this person always drinks this. I remember the first time my favorite bartender in the country, Michael Neff, was at Ward 3 and he said, I'm working on a drink, but I think you would like it a little more sour. And I realized that he knew exactly what I liked to drink and knew that for so many people. And that's just a tremendous gift. And not just exactly what you like to drink, how to iterate. Uh, whereas, you know, beer and wine are finer products. And yes, you can enjoy them on site with terroir, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And there's flexibility with drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that in this day and age, or are people so stuck with educating themselves on the classics that if it doesn't hit that mark, it's, it's not right? Um, I think it varies. And, you know, my definition of what a good bar is sort of changes. I write about bars a lot these days, and I write about new bars, and I can still get excited about a new bar that's maybe a really creative person who's pushing the envelope to have you taste new flavors, new products that are getting imported. Um, A beautiful space goes a long way. Um, But I also like a bar that, you know, just makes you feel cool for just sitting there. The great parody of what you're doing with the Chronicle right now is that you're not just writing about new bars. You've also incorporated the classics uh, in in such a trend-worthy world. Why, Why was that important to you? I think probably the best bars in San Francisco are old bars where the drink may be fine, but the experience is just so cool. And there's people who own bars, you know, with their families, with their wives, people who have owned bars for a long time. Um, and they're places that are real community centers. And in a city where people are constantly leaving, it's amazing to be at a bar where there's you know, a group of people that get together to play music or a group of people that get together to play cards. Name some of those because I do agree. A new bar opens up and you end up seeing the same people because that hive moves to the next place. But when, when we're talking about locals, about, you know, the, these relics that have lasted decades, um, they're not as itinerant. No. And I think each neighborhood needs a bar where they feel welcome and where everybody knows the bartender's name and where people know what you drink and you can just like raise a finger or wave. I think that's that's really important in every town. And what is your anchor and what are some of the other really established anchors in San Francisco? Um, one bar I really love is called The Brazen Head. Um, it's sort of in the marina uh, and... It's just a really special place where they don't judge you at all and and people have been going there for a really long time and have great memories of going to the place and having martinis and feels kind of fancy but you know it's not expensive and I just love that feeling of you're in a place where so many people have sat before you and had their first drink of the day and relaxed. You know, going to a place like that, you look at the bar, do you get uh, do you do you covet the collections that people have at their restaurants and bars, all the bottles, everything on display. I own a lot of booze. (laughs) Well, I mean, that question kind of parlays into, you know, your first book, One Bottle Cocktails, because when someone ends up being as passionate about drinks and drinks writing as you are, 
you do collect and you do have this large home bar or anyone that's maybe a novice or starting their collection, um, they start buying bottles and they have to figure out what to do. So how do you go from being a drinks appreciation person into creating a project like One Bottle Cocktail where you have to use up what you have at home? You know, I think it actually came from, there was a moment where like every cool bar had a book about it and these really creative bartenders were all putting out books and you'd get so excited to have it like, oh, I have it, the recipes from this bar, now I'm going to make them. And then you'd look and you couldn't make them. And even, I have literally like a bar in my dining room area and then also two closets full of booze, which is not going to be acceptable for very much longer. My daughter's going to need her own closet. Uh, But I would look at those books and be like, I can't make those drinks. And really often I get texts and emails from people. My sister-in-law friends will say, oh, I'm I'm hosting for Thanksgiving or, or for Mother's Day and I want a drink. How about gin? And they don't want it to have a million tiny bits of a million things you have to buy. So that book is called The One Bottle Cocktail because every drink has just a single spirit in it. And so there's no vermouth and there's no bitters. Um, I've kind of gotten into this thing where I'm writing books where you don't need something. So that one had no vermouth and no bitters. This one has no cocktail shakers. So so. it's like the elimination diet with cocktails. (laughs) Yes. But by saying no and restricting the things like only herbs, fruit, vegetables, spices etc sweeteners um one bottle cocktail i think was really smart in that it it got people to hone in not only on that spirit but on the expression of that single spirit um how do you write something where there are dozens of different gins on the market though i mean that changes too there are Mm -hmm. permutations uh, by brand by regionality by seasonality too sure Uh, I tested with a bunch of different spirits, but one of the things that became apparent when making that book was also um, how many of these spirits are sort of cousins. So not only, if you sort of are making like a non-alcoholic drink mix, the rest of the recipe, there's the spirit, and then there's sort of this mix. Everything else had to be non-alcoholic, whether it was tea or rice milk or fresh citrus or watermelon juice or whatever it was. You were pairing that with just one spirit, so it wasn't sort of... Uh, layered with liqueurs or whatever. And sometimes the bartenders would send me recipes to try and they'd say, hey, this is a gin recipe, but it also works with tequila. And it became clear that some of these spirits are sort of cousins and often a swap would work that often even a drink would work with a bunch of different bourbons, but it would also work with rum uh, because of similar sort of barrel age, sweet sweet character and, and the herbal side of gin and sort of herbal naturally herbal flavors of tequila are actually so similar that um, some flexibility was in there. And so that's why that book at the end of every chapter suggests ways that you can try those recipes with another um, spirit. I think that was one of the more mind-blowing moments of being in a bar when someone said, oh, you like Manhattan. Have you ever tried that with tequila or mezcal? And you're like, well, is that a Manhattan? What is that? I've never even thought of going outside that box. Um, how big is the box now? <laughs> because there are so many amazing spirits in this country being imported, and the, the knowledge base of what bartenders have has certainly expounded You know, in the recent decade. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're doing swaps like that, it can be a really good way to sample something you haven't tried before. Um, if you have a drink that you really like, um, swapping out one element 
um, for something that's equivalently strong and equivalently sweet. So that's where things are going to go sort of off kilter. If you're trying a liqueur that's much sweeter than the thing that was in the original, you may have to adjust a little. I think people making drinks sometimes forget that they can use the same skills as with cooking that you should taste, you know, especially if you're making a punch and you're going to use sparkling wine and a recipe says Prosecco, of course, there's going to be a wide range. Um, and so you may find, oh, the one that you got today has more of fruity characters, a little sweeter. Then you can adjust just like with cooking. You might add a little more lemon or whatever the tart element is in that drink. I don't know if you like the word mixologist or not. I don't know where that is in the industry now. Um, but it gave some weight to the idea of a bartender cooking. And even in one bottle cocktail, you see culinary ingredients. Uh, there's a garden gnome with green tomato and basil and lime. There's a, a, a silken sour. Uh, th- th- this drink I can't even visualize and I will have to make, but it's uh, Julia Mimos from Chicago and has vodka, uh, simple syrup, lime, and silken tofu. So these ingredients that existed in the cooking world, um, how, how do you bring them into the cocktail world without it seeming like a larf? I mean, I think that's where the bartenders in that book got really creative is that, you know, it's pretty easy to choose from um, a back bar of all these different flavors. And when I sent them to the grocery store, sometimes they'd text me and say, I'm in the grocery store. What do you think about rice milk? Or what do you think about tofu? Um, And you know, you give it a try. And it was a little outside of some of their comfort zone. Um, and I had to test a lot of recipes um, to find ones that really tasted great to me and to sort of get a range of seasonal options. I think for batch cocktails, the new book, more of the drinks were bartenders saying like, this is my signature drink. This is the drink I'm most proud of. And because the rules were a little less strict, um, it meant that more of these drinks really wowed me right away. Well, we're going to be wowed by them right after the break. We'll be coming right back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy 
a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Maggie Hoffman and her book, Batch Cocktails. And this is perfect timing because I love when a guest comes with drink. And the premise of this book is about making drinks ahead. Um, And you have 65 recipes uh, that are herbal, floral, fruity and tart, spicy, savory, smoky, bitter, boozy, even alcohol-free. That is a lot of potables within uh, uh, these pages. Why was it time for this drink to move past one bottle and move into pitcher size? You know, I've been thinking a lot about entertaining lately, and maybe it's all the time I spend at bars. Um, But I think entertaining is really important. And when you're having people over... You really want to be present and hang out with them. The whole point of having people over is to get to spend quality time together. And I know that when people are watching me, I stress out about making cocktails one by one. I stress out about measuring correctly and spilling things and getting the top off the shaker and finding the bitters. And I just, when people come over, I want to be calm and I want to pour a drink and sit down with them and, and traveling around after the one bottle cocktail was published I realized that especially with groups of people I had a much better time if the drinks were made ahead so is this the food equivalent of fast casual or the bar equivalent of that or or is it communal eating I think it's communal eating I think it's it's family style drinks yeah I mean I I I love making things ahead so it makes a dinner party or entertaining seem effortless. But there must be some indispensable things as far as equipment goes. You're not just getting rid of all your jiggers and measurers (laughs) and strainers, are you? I haven't used them in a long time. (laughs) Uh, There are a few things that come in handy. Um, Mason jars are pretty useful. Um, You can use old soda bottles. Um, I like those glass bottles with little flip tops. Um, a pitcher comes in handy, but you can also use a salad bowl. Um, and there are certainly rules um, for what you can mix far in advance and what you want to do, you know, an hour before the doorbell rings. Well, talk to me about this nondescript water bottle that you've brought that <laughs> is not transparent, so you can't see what's in it. it. It must be great for drinking on the subway. But what's in this bottle? Uh, when did you make it? And uh Talk to me about the notes that I'm enjoying. I'm thoroughly enjoying this, by the way. A nice, bitter digestif. So this one's called The Two Words. Um, It's from the bitter chapter of the book. Um, And I made it in my hotel room yesterday. (laughs) I'm sure the hotel is pleased. (laughs) I cleaned up after after myself. Um, And, you know, this book sort of has a few different categories of drinks. um, And one of them is... They're really cocktails, you know, as opposed to like a punch that you might think about like college parties or even sort of historical punches that were lighter, um, maybe made with tea. Um, The difference is that this book, Batch Cocktails, is really cocktails um, that are made basically family style. Um, And so you pour them in the bottle, you pour all your ingredients in the bottle uh, and you always include dilution, 
because I think people forget that when you go to a bar, the bartender is adding a really important ingredient, which is water. Um, and you have to think about that when you're making batch drinks because that water not only lowers the proof of the cocktail so you don't get super drunk right away um, and keeps the balance of the flavors, um, but it also is important to adjust the sweetness of the drink. So you may think I like it strong, but a cocktail needs to be diluted so it's also not too sweet. So all that shaking, stirring isn't just for show. There's actually uh, that, that process is necessary for that final product. Um, but giving it time to coalesce too, you know, in a single bottle as a batch, uh, must do something for a cocktail. Yeah. So I made a lot of these drinks, especially the ones, uh, that don't have any fresh ingredients, no fresh citrus, no lemon. Um, the ones in the boozy chapter and the bitter chapter, especially some of the savory ones. Um, I did some testing that got pretty nerdy, uh, to see how long they would last and the best way to keep them. And most of the drinks in this book are really intended to be your classic, you know, you're having a dinner party and the morning when you get up, you're prepping your ingredients that you're going to cook and you can make your cocktail in advance, same day. Um, if you're making a, you know, watermelon drink, you're going to do it a couple hours before. Most people are just going to drink these drinks that day. Um, but the boozier ones actually can keep. And so I got a dorm fridge, which I put in my living room. It's very cute. <laughs> and I tested a bunch of these drinks a few different ways. So I tested them with dilution and without dilution and with bitters and without bitters. Um, and we did some blind tests over several weeks. We made like four or five different versions of each of the drinks, uh, and then tasted them two weeks in and four weeks in and two months and three months and we just opened a bottle recently that was from when I turned the manuscript in so more than a year ago uh and some of these just get more delicious and it's like aging wine you know the the vermouth or liqueur if there's any you know wine-based elements sherries um tend to sort of change texturally uh, there's a richness and sort of, yeah, coalescing that seems to happen, um, and a slight oxidation, but, uh, the stronger spirits in the mix do seem to preserve it. And so I do recommend if you're going to do this nerdy experiment, um, leave the water out if you're cellaring for the long haul. Uh, so that you have really as high proof a drink as possible. And then you can just pour in the measured water um, the day you're going to serve it and the bitters, or you can stir those drinks to order if you want to leave some of them high proof. Um, sometimes I'll split the batch in two so I can taste one in a month and one in a year. Um, they make good gifts too. It's a hell of a drinking schedule you set up for yourself. <laughs> I think it's wonderful advice you've given all those you know, college kids with those small mini fridges, because I can see them getting busted not just for shitty piss yellow beer anymore, but for these wonderfully batched out cocktails. Um, the one that we have in front of us, what, what is specifically in it? Well, it's kind of a bartender's trick that I, I'm not sure I was in on until writing this book. Um, it's a 50-50, so it's equal parts um, bonded apple brandy like Laird's um, and Zucca Rebarbaro, uh, which is an Amaro that's really delicious and a little smoky, um, and I really love it. And together, I think they're, yeah, they're a little smoky. There's a bit of char, um, and it's just that simple. It's those two things and a little dilution, um, and it's a great after-dinner drink. 
It has such complexity and depth. And I, I am an Amari fan, and I was looking through your book for a lot of those. And I've only recently fallen into the the Lairds, the Applejack, um, really enjoying like even Calvados. Uh, and I saw a lot of those that had those very uh, strong spirits. But again, you say that there there are wines. There's drinks with Sauvignon Blanc. There are drinks with fruit juices. There are drinks with fortifieds. Um, what do people need in their home bar to be able to make these batch cocktails? What, what is the basic set or tenets mm. of things that they should have? I usually advise that people don't stock up a bar ahead of time. I think you should sort of buy as you go. And so think about the season and think about your mood. And like, so if you're having a, you know, a dinner party with tacos and you want to offer you know, maybe a tequila drink, you might start there, maybe in the herbal section with a tequila drink, and then you might do also a non-alcoholic drink that would go with the cocktails. Um, And so maybe just buy those ingredients. And one of the things I've tried to do throughout the book is there's a little note that says use it up. So if you do buy this Zuka, which I think is delicious, Mm -hmm. and you don't just drink it all at night in a cup, uh, you have a suggestion for another way to use it, which is I love doing it in a Boulevardier, and sometimes I use scotch uh, for the whiskey in that, the Zuka instead of Campari. Um, and so I think that's another good way to use up the rest of the bottle. Speaking of scotch, I I have this face that I make whenever I try to drink scotch, and it's not the most becoming thing. Uh, and my wife is much more the brown spirits drinker. But I do like scotch in cocktails. Um, and you have a cocktail in here that I've highlighted for my wife to make called the Sneaky Pete, which is also an excellent, excellent name that has scotch, um, uh, Angostura, extra strong oolong tea, cranberry syrup, water, lemons, and cranberries. Um, what I love about that is that it has so much going on, but I can actually visualize exactly what that tastes like. So these are not crazy, far-fetched ideas. They, they, they exist in the realm of something. What is the story behind this one? I love this drink. Maybe most because I love this bartender. Um, this is Laura Newman's drink. She works. She used to live in Brooklyn and work in Brooklyn, and now she's in Birmingham at Queens Park. And when she told me about this drink, I just could picture Thanksgiving parties and this beautiful punch bowl with cranberries in it. Um, and you make this wonderful tart cranberry syrup. And I think when she first sent me the recipe, she just said strong tea. And I was like, cool, okay, like 10 minutes. She was like, oh, no, no, like 10 hours. And so you get this really beautiful tannic tea uh, that has, that's very dry um, and has a little bit of bitterness. And you have a lot of Angostura, which has lovely spice. And the tartness of the cranberries plus fresh lemon Uh, And the scotch is sort of the base note that's a little bit smoky. uh, And it just makes a gorgeous drink that's perfect for fall. So talking about the base note versus the forefront flavor, where where does the spirit lay in batch cocktails? Is it the most overt thing or is it a backbone? I think with any cocktail, you're looking for a balance. Um, And sometimes it's a little bit the personality of the person who's making it. I think in this case, everything is interlocking really beautifully, that spice and the smoke and the tartness. Um, So, you know, they should be as balanced as any cocktail you'd order. I think when I started writing this book, a lot of people said to me, well, aren't batch cocktails always sweet? And so I've been thinking about that a lot and why they would have that idea. 
And I think it's a few things. I think often cocktails at events uh, are sort of made for the lowest common denominator. They assume that people aren't sort of cocktail connoisseurs that would be up for like a risky Amaro situation. Um, And I have more respect for people than that. I think sometimes people... Um, take shortcuts when they make batch cocktails. Like, oh man, I don't want to juice five lemons, so I'm just going to buy this shelf-stable stuff that tastes really terrible. Um, So I think when you're making batch cocktails, you know, you think about ingredients the same way you would as if you were cooking for friends. You know, um, the effort involved in making fresh juices or buying a really beautiful bottle uh, will pay off. Let's talk about those fresh juices just because I think there's a major difference between drinking in New York and San Francisco in that I'm assuming you might have a citrus tree in your backyard or at least access to, you know, really beautiful fresh fruit. Uh, For those of us that don't, that spring hasn't happened to yet, um, what do we do? I mean, how, how do we navigate that? I mean, I think there's a drink for every season, Um, And that's when choosing a drink with Aperol, for example, will give you some of that sunny flavor um, and some of the herbal drinks that use more fresh herbs um, and less less produce based. You were talking about uh, the reflection of oneself in a cocktail. Is there a drink that projects you as a person from this book? I mean, I do have some favorites. I mean, I, I was looking through, and not just because of the name, um, I thought I was very much a Sandy Bottom, uh, because I do love the freshness of, of watermelon, and I would never pick white rum as a thing to have on its own, but the, the way it elevates everything else around it, and especially if I'm on a beach or somewhere you know, near a body of water, uh, that's exactly what I'm going for. Yeah. Uh, oh, I have so many favorites. One of the one of the real favorites is called All She Wrote, um, and it's made mostly with Punta Mace, which is a bitter vermouth that is basically my favorite thing on the planet. Um, and so it's it's flavored with a few other things, but really the base is this this bitter vermouth. It's sort of halfway between like Carpano Antica and Fernet. Um, and I love to have it around, and I love it even more with a little dry vermouth, and it's sweetened with maraschino and pamplemousse, which is grapefruit liqueur, um, and it has a little bit of Peychaud's bitters in it. And then you do just a little bit of flaky sea salt on on part on top of it, which sort of cuts the bitterness a little bit, the same way you'd like probably put a little salt on a radicchio salad. Um, and I love this drink. It's so smooth. It doesn't have a strong spirit in it, so there's no gin, there's no vodka. Um, but it still ages really nicely. So that's one that if I'm being good to myself, I'll make a batch and put it in the back of the fridge and forget about it for a while. In, in that drink, uh, just because I like saying this word, pamplemousse liqueur, um, you give two different brands, uh, Combier and Giffard. Now, how do you accommodate for well, different tastes. Uh, do some people like one brand over the other? Is there a way to modulate these batch cocktails that you only make a part of it, then you build out the rest with other spirits? Mm. Um, just because when you go to a bar and you see a bartender making a single drink, and like you said, maybe they recognize you and you're a regular and they know uh, your, your flavor profile or your tendencies, how do you do that with batch cocktails? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think... In the case of Cambier or Giffard, those are both just really good quality brands and you're going to have success with that. And so 
usually what I'm doing is saying, look for something good. Um, but sometimes in these drinks, I've offered the possibility of making it two ways, like making an alcoholic version and a non-alcoholic version. Um, like there's a great brunch drink that has a spicy mango uh, syrup that I really love and you can do it um, it's it's inspired by those like spicy mango candies um, which the bartender grew up eating I'm just looking for the page uh, and you can do it with booze or not and that can be really great for a group like if you're doing um, a brunch or a baby shower or something like that. I know you did not slack on the NAs because I love the turmeric pineapple that you have in there. And we've already made it at the house, pineapple juice, lemon, turmeric, honey syrup, water. And this might be a tangent, um, but we are both huge fans of sauna at Diaspora Co. And me too. that turmeric <laughs> makes such a difference in that yeah. drink. So it really is about buying the best quality ingredients for any of these. Yeah. That drink is also really good with tequila in it. If you want to spike one, one serving. Again, what drink are you? Hmm. I know you said you had a favorite, but what defines you as a as a you know cocktailian as a as a drinks writer? It could be the closing argument, um, which is a riff on the last word. Um, I feel like last word is one of my favorite drinks. It's a classic um, that has lime and green chartreuse and gin. And it's tart and herbal. Um, and I also like that variations always has, have clever names. Um, but the one that's in this book is a delicious drink that I had at Multnomah Whiskey Library in Portland. Um, I went over Christmas break and had this like incredible drinking experience there and was feeling really cool for being there. And then across the room, I saw my entire high school football team <laughs> was all sitting on the other side. And I kind of waved like sort of shyly and they didn't see me. And that seemed sort of uh, a perfect, perfect example of how high school was. Uh, and this drink was the drink that we drank there. Um, it's made with rye instead of gin. And it has Grand Classico, which is a very bitter sort of cousin to Campari, um, and yellow chartreuse and lemon. And it's sour and bitter, which is usually what I say to bartenders when they say, what do you want? I say, find me something sour and bitter. Oh, when they usually ask me, like, how are you feeling? I'm like, I'm pretty sour and bitter today. So <laughs> I usually get those similar <laughs> drinks. And, you know... The closing argument would have been a great uh, point to stop this conversation, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the photographs, the imagery behind this, because cocktails uh, are, are a very visual thing, too. We're not making all brown and downs. Uh, they're not all fruited and up. Um, they are striking examples of the expression of not only a bartender, but of the spectrum of different spirits and ingredients we have in the cocktail world. Uh, Let's talk visuals. Let's talk Kelly, your photographer, and let's talk about what you're trying to portray in the imagery. Kelly is a goddess. Um, I had seen her work uh, in the Negroni book, um, and she just has a way of capturing light that I think is so stunning, where just like spirits just sort of glow, and she captures very fine detail, um, which I love. And she does a lot of... Um, books these days, but also shoots some commercial work. And sometimes I've seen her do some beautiful work um, making photographs of lingerie. And I think actually there's a lot of ways in which cocktails and lingerie are similar to photograph that she 
sort of has her eye on this very fine detail, the tiny little bubble, the tiny little bit of lace. Um, and I think in this second book, Batch Cocktails, she just really hit it out of the park. And they're usually both only seen at night, even though I think <laughs> some of the NAs can be drank any time. Uh, again, I, I must say the, the imagery is beautiful. The voice is wonderful because you're also um, expressing these ideas and stories from bartenders around the country that you admire and, and you know, enjoy the, the prospects of whatever they're going to make. Um, if you were to make a cocktail... Uh, what would be in your mind's eye if, and what would the name of your cocktail for batch cocktails be? Hmm. Well, a few of them are mine. I played around with the, the non-alcoholic drinks, especially because I started realizing that I was really picky about non-alcoholic drinks. Um, but I think the visual is really important. I think uh, showing that light and the glow, you know, sort of reflects the sort of warmth of those the spirits sort of sliding down your throat you know i think i think it's all it's all connected well you show so much warmth and spirit in what you've done and being on it and this drink too has a lot of warmth and spirit in it too uh called the two words correct but a wonderful 50 50 there are so many beautiful cocktails in this book 65 to be exact if not more um please Get Batch Cocktails today. Thank you so much for being on, Maggie. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Big thank you to our sponsor, Amy Roth. Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.